The scripture today is from Luke 7, 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There is this strange phenomenon that I have noticed over the years with my children when they're very young, especially at Christmas. And here is this strange phenomenon. My wife and I spend uh, hours thinking about what might be the perfect gift for our child, something they'll love, something that they'll be excited about and full of joy over, and we, we get that gift. We purchase it, and then we wrap it in a box, and we put wrapping paper on it and a bow and then Christmas morning comes, and they go to open that gift. And they tear through the wrapping paper, and they open the box, and they pull the gift out, and they look at it for a second, and then they set it aside, and they start playing with the box. And all of you that have, had, that have young children, there's that there's certain window where that's exactly what happens, and you think, I don't know that I'm ever going to purchase a gift again. We're just going to wrap empty boxes because they just love playing with the box. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been given an amazing gift. You've been given an extraordinary gift, 
an extravagant gift, the gift of all gifts, a gift you didn't earn. It's the, the most amazing gift ever, and yet I'm convinced that many of us play with the box and don't cherish the gift. This parable is about one person who plays with the box and one person who cherishes the gift, and the result is drastically different. The one who plays with the box is, is cold and unwelcoming and calculated, and the one who cherishes the gift loves in a way, displays love that is over-the-top extravagant. Why? How do you love God and others with extravagance? And we're gonna see it involves confessing the depth of your sin, it involves embracing the cost of forgiveness, and taking the flask off your neck. Let's start with confessing the depth of your sin. You know, on the surface, the depth of Simon's sin, the Pharisee, and this woman's sin, sin seem drastically different. In fact, they, you couldn't pick two more polar opposite people. Simon is a Pharisee, which means that he is a religious man. He is probably a very disciplined man. Uh, he knows the scriptures. He knows the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament as a good Jew. He prays. He probably ties regularly at the temple. And he's not perfect, right? But he is, he on the surface seems to be getting pretty close. And then you've got this woman and she is <laughs> the complete opposite. It says that she's a woman of the city, comma, a sinner. And she's a prostitute. She's undisciplined. She's an emotional wreck. She is desperate. She is day-to-day. <laughs> probably not very religious. Probably doesn't know the Torah, the scriptures. I mean, two completely opposite people. And yet Jesus tells this story in this parable to say there are two pieces of common ground between Simon and this woman. The first piece of common ground, and, and it's this, this, this place of common ground that is gonna explain the depth of sin. Okay, the first place of common ground is, is the common ground of debt. Look at verse 41 to 42. It says, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, 500 denarii, probably somewhere around close to one year's worth of wages or paychecks. 50 denarii, probably somewhere close to one month's worth of wages or paychecks. So these are not insignificant debts. The key is the beginning of verse 42. What does it say? when they could not pay. Neither debtor could pay. Whether it was 500 or 50, they could not pay. Legally, they were in the same position, unable to make good on their debt, unable to pay it back, and so legally, they were in the same place of going to jail if they didn't pay their debt. Now, let me, if you can use your uh, sanctified mind for a second and, and go with me to uh, roadkill, Okay, let me explain. How does a squirrel die when you hit it on the road? Okay, there, there's two ways, two ways, okay? 
The one way that a squirrel can die is it bounds across the road. You can hit it with your bumper and knock it off to the side of the road, and it can go unconscious. No blood, just death by blunt force trauma. The other way a squirrel can die is you can run over it with your tire, and there can be blood and guts splattered all over the road. Uh, One is pretty dead, one is ugly dead. Both are dead. This woman's sin (laughs) looks so much worse than Simon's. And yet, guess what? They're both dead. One is pretty dead, one is ugly dead. But they're both dead. They're both unable to pay the debt that has accrued. Now, you say, how can that be? How can that be? If you only have a view of sin that accounts for external acts of disobedience, then then you're gonna struggle to see how this woman and Simon are on the same page or on the same ground. And and you're gonna have the same problem that Simon had. He, He was struggling. He couldn't figure this out. See, the second common ground here is the common ground of sin. Now, what is sin? That's the question you have to answer. And Jesus tells us, gives us a a beautiful definition of sin from the short parable that he tells in 41 and 42. He says, a moneylender lent these two debtors money. Note, these debtors, these two people did not own the money, did they? It was on loan to them. And Jesus is telling this parable to say, he is the moneylender. Jesus is the moneylender. And that everything we have is on loan. Everything we have is on loan. We don't own anything. It's all on loan from Jesus. And yet you may say, Keith, I've worked really hard to get where I'm at. I've worked really hard. And you may have, you may be a hard worker and you may have worked hard to get where you're at, but you didn't work hard for your intellect. You didn't work hard for your abilities. You didn't work hard for your gifts. You didn't work hard for a high IQ or a low IQ or a middle IQ. That was given to you. That's on loan to you. That you don't own it. Here's a working definition of sin that I believe comes out of this parable. Sin is the desire to live independent of God, a refusal to acknowledge that everything belongs to him. Sin is a a desire to live independent of God and a refusal to acknowledge that everything, everything belongs to him. That's how we see it enter the world in Genesis 3, don't we? Adam and Eve wanted to be independent of God. They wanted to be in control. They wanted to be their own lords, their own saviors, and you and I inherit that sin. And if you're honest in the depth of your heart, you can't stand to be dependent on God for his timing, for his direction, for his wisdom. That that sin we inherit is that sin that says, I will be my own Lord. I will be my own master. I will be in control. I will live my life. You see, the reason that Simon looked down on this prostitute is because Simon was convinced he had made good moral choices and that this woman had made bad immoral choices. That that's why he looked down on her. 
You know, Simon was probably born to a pretty put-together family. He was probably born into a a law-abiding Jewish family. He was probably raised to to memorize the Torah, to memorize the scriptures. He was taken to temple where he prayed. He was raised in a strong, God-fearing home. This woman, this prostitute, just the opposite. Probably born into a broken family. If the statistics are true, and I, and I shared them a couple weeks ago, if 87% of prostitutes are sexually abused by the age of eight, by the age of 12, they're using drugs to cope with this, and by early teenage years, they run away from home or they run away from foster care and are, are tracked down by predatory pimps who, who sell them into the sex trade. If that is true, 87%, of prostitutes, then we know what this woman's life was like. We know the broken family that she was probably born into. Simon, the Pharisee, didn't choose to be born into the family he was born into, nor did this woman choose to be born into the family she was born into. Rugged independence. Don't you see the common ground between the two now? You've got Simon, the Pharisee, you've got this woman, Both are seeking independence from God. Both are seeking independence from God. Simon is expressing his independence by following all the rules and taking credit for everything. This woman is expressing her independence from God up until this point, right, by breaking all the rules and living her life how she wants to and trying to find some semblance of a life, even if prostitution is the answer. They're both expressing rugged independence. You know, we would probably learn a lot about common ground if we would drive down Phillips Highway here in Jacksonville and stop to talk to a prostitute, to sit down with a prostitute and ask questions. Where were you born? Where were you raised? What was your family like growing up? What's your relationship with your parents today? When did you become a prostitute? What are the dreams for your life? What would you love in life? What are your thoughts about God? What are your thoughts about the church? It would be eye-opening for many of us. And I think what you would find is that you, when you peel back the external layers, that you look drastically different than that woman, you would find the same rugged independence at a heart level. You know, we were in community group last Sunday And somebody said, why, when things get tough, are my husband and Jesus the last people I want to talk to? And we all kind of looked around and went, yeah. Why, when life gets hard, you know, my spouse and Jesus the last I want to talk to? Here's the reason why. It's because we don't want to be dependent, that we want control. We want to fix our own life. We don't want to be dependent. We don't want to trust God. Because to trust God says this, that now it's out of my control to trust him. And that means that I can't control how my career is going to go. I can't control if somebody will ever want to marry me. I can't control if my health is going to get better. I can't control my child and my child's heart softening to the gospel because it's hard right now. You lose control. We don't want to trust 
Loving God and loving others with extravagance starts with recognizing and embracing and confessing that deep independence that exists in your heart of wanting to be your own Lord and Savior. That's the common ground. Second, extravagant love flows out of embracing the cost of forgiveness. Look at verse 42. The cost of forgiveness, when they could not pay, we just explored that, neither could pay in their debt, it says he, the money lender, canceled the debt of both. Now, what does this mean? It appears as though the money lender just says, you know what? I'm just gonna cancel it. Forget about it. We'll just kind of sweep it under the carpet. Just poof, it's gone. No, that's not what that means. For the money lender to cancel the debt means that he had to eat it himself. That he had to eat the debt. Imagine a, a bank that lends a developer a large amount of money to go develop this piece of property. And the developer ends up going belly up. It doesn't work out. Doesn't develop the property. Things don't go as planned. And the, and the developer cannot pay the bank back. Can't pay the monthly payments on the loan. For the bank to forgive that debt, that means the bank has to eat it. <laughs> Which means if it's a large debt, it could mean that the bank has to lay off employees to eat that debt, right? That, that forgiveness comes at a cost. Now, I want you to imagine the debt that you have racked up towards Jesus. You know, if your debt looks more like Simon's, it's a debt that's, that, that looks like this. I've got control of my life. I'm a disciplined person. Uh, yeah, I need Jesus, but he's on a shelf. He's kind of like a genie in the bottle. He, I, I will determine when and how Jesus fits into my life, right? That's the, that's the debt that, that Simon was accruing. If your sin is more like the woman's, it's a, I, I don't even recognize Jesus. I don't recognize spiritual things. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna live my life. I'm gonna be free. I don't want to be dependent on God or Jesus, and, and I'm going to take the gifts he's given me, and I'm going to use them, right? This woman, she took her sexuality, she used it for her good, right? All, all that debt that we rack up and we build against Jesus, and, and here's what Jesus says, you, you have been accruing debt your entire life against me, wanting independence from me, and here's my response, I will give you my life. I will give you my life. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Enemies, that's the rugged independence. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Colossians 2.14, he canceled, means he absorbed it, didn't just poof, go away. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Sergeant uh, Dennis Weichel, he was 29 years old. He was serving in Afghanistan in 2012. He was a National Guardsman from uh, Rhode Island. And he was out on a convoy in eastern Afghanistan one day, and this convoy was coming down the road, and, and Sergeant Weichel and others noticed uh, some Afghan children that were in the road ahead of him. And they were in the road because what they were doing was picking up shell casings because they could turn these in, right, and, and get money. They were recycled, 
And so they would gather them and take them to, to get some money out of these right recycled shell casings. So, so Sergeant Weichel, he, they stopped the vehicles, they got out, and they went and they, they removed the kids from the road. And they removed the kids, and then one Afghan girl darted back into the road to, to supposedly go pick up a few more shell casings. And here comes this 16-ton armored military truck right down the road. And so Sergeant Weichel ran out into the road, removed the girl, and got hit by the truck and died. And the girl lived. What an amazing picture of the cost of salvation. That, that you and I, with our, with our independence and our rugged independence, which means we go scrapping for shell casings in the road with the truck of God's judgment coming to, take, to, to call in the debt of our sin. And Jesus goes and moves us and steps in front and takes judgment for us. Takes our judgment pays the debt that we accrued by our independence and our rebellion, and he takes it and he dies so that you could live. Romans 8.32, God did not spare his own son, gave him up freely for a people that, that ran from him and that ran from him. That there's a cost to salvation, and you can see in this story, right, there, by the way, the scriptures teach that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood because life is in the blood. Right? There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Somebody's blood had to be shed for your sin and Jesus shed for you. And in this story, the woman gets that. The woman sees the cost of salvation. She sees what Jesus will do. She sees who he is, the forgiveness he offers, and her response is one of extravagant love. Simon doesn't see it. He doesn't see the cost, and the result is a cold, calculated, unwelcoming man. How do you love God and others with extravagance? Confessing the depth of your sin, embracing the cost of forgiveness, and finally, by taking the flask off your neck. Now, what do I mean, what do I mean by this? Well, let's dig into the context of the story. We don't know exactly why Simon throws this meal for Jesus. Perhaps it was the Sabbath day. Perhaps Jesus taught in Sabbath, in Sabbath worship that morning. And so Simon and some of his friends had Jesus over for lunch. This is like having the preacher over for lunch after worship service. I mean, that's what happened here. And it says that Simon invited him over, but in, in verses 44 to 46, Jesus says that Simon failed to give Jesus what was just a common courtesy of a guest which was he didn't kiss him, he didn't wash his feet, and he didn't put oil on his head. That's what you would do to, just as a common courtesy to welcome someone into your home. And Simon didn't do that. Why not? Well, we don't know exactly, but we do know the track record of the Pharisees. Perhaps Jesus said something a little bit tough that morning. Perhaps it ruffled Simon's feathers. Perhaps it ruffled the, the Pharisees a little bit. And they said, you know what? Let's have Jesus over. Let's interrogate a little bit. Let's ask him some questions, right? And when he comes over, I'm not gonna extend the common courtesy because I want him to know who's in charge. I want him to know who's in control, who has the power in this situation. So we're gonna have him over, but he, we're not gonna extend common courtesy to him, right? And it says that he was reclined at the table. 
what would happen is they would recline on the ground, they'd, they'd lean on their left elbow and they would eat with their right hand and their, their feet would be out away from the table. And so always when they have rabbis talking like this, there would be an outer circle of people, kind of the public circle, that would sit in and listen. And so this woman was in this outer circle. Now, she decides to take a risky move and step forward. Why? Maybe she, maybe she saw what was happening here. Maybe she saw the coldness. Maybe she saw that Jesus never got a common welcome, a warm welcome. Maybe she saw what was going on, that Jesus was on trial, and she was convinced, this man, right, I'm gonna express my thanks because I heard the message of salvation from Jesus, and you can tell it has changed her. She heard the message of forgiveness, so she walks forward. And she gets to Jesus' feet, and she can't even control her emotions. She starts weeping, and the tears are falling on Jesus' feet. She has no towel to wipe them up, so she then takes her hair down. That was scandalous in that day. Women didn't take their hair down. So she takes her hair down, gets on her knees. She's wiping his feet, and then, if that's not enough, she breaks the flask of ointment. What is that flask? This woman was a prostitute. This flask hanging around her neck was the tool for her trade. It was perfume. It was what made her desirable. It was what made her attractive. It's what put food on the table for her. It's what paid her rent. And she pours it out. She poured out what made her feel a sense of worth. She poured out what gave her some semblance of of meaning or success. She poured out what, what made her feel secure. She poured out what gave her provision. And notice she didn't just pour it on the ground. She poured it on Jesus' feet, the very one that could give her the security she really wanted and the provision she really needed and the worth that she really was desiring and the meaning that she really was after. She poured it out on Jesus. So the question is, what's the, what's the flask around your neck? You know, everyone in here has a flask around their necks, me included. What, what, is, what makes you feel worthy? What makes you feel secure? What makes you feel like you are somebody? What justifies your existence? Every person has a flask around their neck. And the answer is, you've got to pour it out. Because as long as you have that flask around your neck, you cannot love extravagantly. You cannot love sacrificially. If the flask around your neck is reputation, or maybe it's success, or maybe it's career, or maybe it's pleasure, or security, whatever it is, as long as that flask is around your neck, you will use others to refill it. You have no choice. And so your love will not be extravagant or selfless. Right, this woman, she used men. She used men to refill that flask, so to speak. And men used her. 
And you have no choice with that flask around your neck but to use people. You can't love extravagantly. And so Jesus says, you've got to pour it out. You've got to pour it out at my feet so that I can fill you. And now you're filled to display extravagant love. I'll close with this story. It's, a, it's a, a wonderful short story called Babette's Feast. And uh, it's a story about a strict, dour, fundamentalist community uh, in Denmark. And, and Babette, she works as a, a cook for two elderly sisters. And uh, she works as a cook for them. They have no idea that she used to be the chef to nobility in her hometown of France, in her native France. And the story goes, she longs to, she longs to get back to France. She longs to get back to Paris, her hometown. And so every year she buys a lottery ticket. And she hopes that with the proceeds, if she wins the lottery, that she can return to France. But every day, these uh, elderly women, her, her, her employers, demand her to fix the same dour meal every night, right? Boiled, boiled chicken or boiled fish and potatoes. And they say to her, Jesus commanded, take no thought of food and drink. You just cook those boiled potatoes and that boiled fish. And then and let me just pick up. One day the unbelievable happens. Babette wins the lottery. The prize is 10,000 francs, a small fortune. And because the anniversary of the founding of the community is approaching, Babette asks if she might prepare a French dinner with all the trimmings for the entire village. At first the townspeople refuse. No, it would be sin to indulge in such rich food. But Babette begs them and they, they finally relent. As a favor to you, we will allow you to serve us this French dinner. But the people secretly vow not to enjoy the feast and instead to occupy their minds with spiritual things, believing God will not blame them for eating this sinful meal as long as they do not enjoy it. Babette begins her preparations. Caravans of exotic food arrive in the village along with the cages of quail and barrels of fine wine. Finally, the big day comes and the village gathers. The first course is an exquisite turtle soup. The diners force it down without enjoyment. But although they usually eat in silence, conversation begins to take off. Then comes the wine, the finest vintage in France, and the atmosphere changes. Someone smiles. Someone else giggles. An arm comes up and drapes over a shoulder. Someone is heard to say, after all, did not the Lord Jesus say love one another? By the time the main entree of quail arrives, those austere, pleasure-fearing people are giggling and laughing and slurping and praising God for their many years together. This pack of Pharisees is transformed into a loving community through the gift of a meal. One of the two sisters goes into the kitchen to thank Babette, saying, oh, how we will miss you when you return to Paris. And Babette replies, I will not be returning to Paris because I have no money. I spent it all on the feast. Jesus spent it all on us, that we would be a community that loves with extravagance and that loves with sacrifice. He who is forgiven much, loves much. Let's pray. Father, you gave up your son freely. You didn't spare him. 
Jesus, you spent it all on us. That we would be a community that loves you and that loves one another with extravagance, with sacrifice, with generosity. I pray boldly that you would continue in this local body here at Christ Church East to cultivate a community that is just over the top with love. Like this woman who took an, a huge risk to step forward out of that outer circle to express her love through tears to you, Jesus. Would we be a people that express our love to you, Jesus, with extravagance? And may it produce a community of people that are broken and sinful, and yet a community of people who cherish the gift of you, Jesus. Father, as we close in worship now, would you help us to sing, hallelujah, what a savior. Jesus, you paid it all. And all to you we owe. We pray this in your name. Amen.